You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning, City Church. Uh, My name is Zach Meredith. I'm the group's director here, and once again, we are uh, excited to be together this morning as we uh, get to dive into 1 Corinthians and finish chapter 10. And as you know from the video, uh, we had an amazing kids camp uh, this past week. I tried to wear that same Hawaiian shirt, but they nixed it real quick. Uh, We had 340 kids at our church, and they got to hear about how much God loves them and how God made them uniquely in his image. And uh, we had a, uh, one of the reasons it was a great camp was because of our amazing kids staff and the volunteers that made it happen. So real quick, if you volunteered in any capacity over this past week, can you please stand so we can thank you real quick? Thank you guys so much. Uh, It was an amazing uh, uh, week and uh, your hard work, uh, we see fruit from it. So thank you so much uh, for volunteering in that role. Um, But last week, we mentioned uh, that the book of 1 Corinthians is Paul's response to the many shortcomings of the congregation of the church in Corinth. And I'm not going to harp on these shortcomings because like, we'll get to them as we work through the book. Um, but you know, no church is perfect. No Christian is perfect. Uh, no one can measure up to God's standard. And we thank Jesus right, uh, for his work on the cross on our behalf. But this church was kind of wild. And we see it over and over again. And uh, today's no different. Um, So as we conclude chapter 10 today, if you were here last week, we're also, uh, you know that we're also concluding a larger chunk of scripture, chapters 8, 9, and 10 that are read as one where Paul writes on the topic of Christian liberty, right? What we can and can't do, what we should do and shouldn't do as a Christian because of number one, our convictions based on scripture, and number two, our witness to the world around us. So today we're going to be in chapter 10, uh, verses 23 through 33, into chapter 11, 1. And Paul here is going to address under what circumstances was it lawful to eat meat offered to idols, that was sacrificed to idols. And as we saw last week in the previous paragraph, Paul uses the argument of the Lord's Supper to prove that it's impossible to both eat at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or uh, in another way to put it, it's impossible to serve idols of this world and to serve God. And because when we partake in the Lord's Supper together as a body of believers, we're captured and captivated by the goodness of God and we're focused on the work of Jesus on the cross, but we must continue to make an effort to sit with the Lord every day. And so now as he concludes this whole argument in chapters 8, 9, and 10, Um, on the argument of Christian liberty, he's really going to lean heavily into this moral conundrum that the people of Corinth uh, were stuck on. And like I said before, that's whether it is sinful or whether it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. So let's open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10. Going to be at the very last section of 1 Corinthians 10. And it's titled Christian Liberty. We're going to go 23 through 11.1. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23 says, Everything is permissible. Notice the quotations there. But not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. So eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. 
If any of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, go and eat everything that is set before you without raising question for the sake of conscience. But if someone says to you, this food is from a sacrifice, don't eat it. Out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. And I don't mean your own conscience, but the conscience of the other person. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? Verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of, other, of many, so that they may be saved. Chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Let's pray together and we'll dive in. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here today. As we look at your scripture, God, please uh, speak through me as, uh, as we read um, this passage on Christian liberty. God, please open all of our hearts and our eyes and ears to hear what you have for us today and that we would be changed people when we go out uh, to Tallahassee and beyond. In your name we pray, amen. So right at the beginning of this section of scripture, we see Paul actually go back and reiterate something that he wrote earlier in the letter in chapter 6, because he's going to restate and remind his audience, so both the, the people of Corinth and us reading today, of the general law of Christian liberty. In verse 23, he says, everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. Again, everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one seeks no one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. And what's interesting is this part in the quotations here, everything is permissible, was actually an argument that the Corinthians had used before to Paul to try to justify some of their actions, right? Because we know they had, they were, they were continuing to abuse the freedom that they have in Christ, and they were doing very sinful things, all while saying, hey, everything is permissible. We looked at the Lord's Supper and, and why they thought that last week. So here, it's kind of savage. Paul is using their own argument against them. He's quoting them first and then refuting it by pointing out their obvious abuse of Christian liberty. Basically saying, hey, you may think you have the freedom to do whatever you want, but your freedom, when you say everything is permissible, well, that's causing harm to others. Therefore, it, it's a bad thing. When we first started the study of 1 Corinthians a few years ago, this is what our pastor Dean and Sarah said about the church in Corinth. He said, the Corinthians were distorting Paul's point to mean that now they could live however they wanted to and nothing was out of bounds because they're following Jesus. Now that they're forgiven and they have taken the Lord's Supper, which we looked at last week, nothing was out of bounds. All things were lawful and acceptable for them to partake in. So what Paul is saying in verse 23 here is that the general rule of thumb as a Christian, and that we're not just talking about, you know, strictly pertaining to meats and drinks, but all other actions in our life as a believer is to act first in regard for God's glory, right? Bring glory to him in all that we do, and he's going to talk about that in a second. Second, to look out for the well-being of others, right? Doing all we can not to bring an offense or a sin towards anyone, and Paul's going to go on to say, we're going to see in just a second, that sometimes that may look like us not doing something we think is okay for the sake of the other person. 
because it could be a stumbling block for them. And then third, thinking of self. So as we continue to look at this passage together, I think we can really boil and grind it down into this main idea, is that a Christian life is one that puts God first, that puts others second, and that puts self third. And in this text, Paul is putting limits on the freedoms that we enjoy in Christ for the sake of others, right? We, I think we can all agree, while mo- like most things we do aren't going to harm us, like spiritually, but our actions and choices could harm those around us. And what Paul's instructing us here is that partaking and doing those things that may bring harm to a fellow Christian spiritually or cause them to stumble makes that particular action just not worth it, even if we think it's okay, makes it not worth it. All right, living a life that looks out for the well-being of our brothers and sisters in Christ, that should be our goal. And so if there's an action that, you know, maybe you or I deem as permissible in our own life as a Christian, right, something that's not going to lead us into sin or temptation, but that same thing could potentially steer a fellow Christian into sin, Paul's saying, hey, you shouldn't do it. Not because it's going to be harmful to you, but because it's going to benefit your brother and sister in Christ or anybody else around a practical example that I've heard of like what this actually practically looks like in a modern context and kind of puts into perspective is having like alcohol available at a social event that you host. Um, so like if you're able to drink a beer, have a glass of wine and do so responsibly and permissible to the context of scripture, that's okay. But if you invite someone, a Christian who maybe struggles with alcohol abuse or loses control after drinking you know, a drink in spirals, Paul would say, and probably many of us would agree, that the best thing you could do is just to not have alcohol at the party, just to not have it at the, at the football watching event. And this way, you're helping that fellow believer stay clear of potential sin. And obviously, in doing so, that's going to limit your own freedom, right? But Paul is saying, is, hey, it's worth it. That's way worth it. Why is it worth it? Well, because sin is serious. We think sin is serious. That's what originally separated the believer from God. And that's what separates the non-believer from God right now. And we know that sin should continually be fought against. So I, I think, I hold to this conviction that one of the worst things that I could do as a Christian is to lead another Christian into the entanglement of sin. And, and I have heard this argument said before. I've, I, it's, it's been said to my face before, well, you know, well, why should I give up my religious freedom? Because somebody else can't control themselves in the face of temptation, right? Why should I not do what I want to do because somebody else is weak? Why sh- when I control myself, why should I change what I do because somebody else can't control themselves? Well, I would say that the response to that, well, it's not about you, right? It's not about me. It's not about looking out for the needs of The self, right, the Christian life, and we see this over and over again in Scripture, the life that is a follower of Christ is not one that looks out for the need of self and self-satisfaction first, but it's a life that looks to build others up. Where do we see that in Christ? Or Oh, man, spoiler alert. Where do we see that in the Bible? Christ. Uh, We see that. He is our ultimate example in that, right? Mark 10, 45 says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, 
and to give his life for a ransom for many. One of my best friends, he, when we became friends, he's a very generous guy, and anytime he would do something like very kind to me, I'd say, man, thank you so much. And he would say, hey, man, he's a Bainbridge boy, so he's got that twang. He was like, hey, man, it's better to serve than to be served. I was like, that's weird, dude. But he kept on saying it. It's better to serve than to be served. Hey, it's better to serve than to be served. And there's biblical truth in that. It's better to serve than to be served. And we look at the servitude that Christ displayed not only on the cross, right, the ultimate example of service to us, but servitude as a distinct characteristic of his ministry on earth and that is the example that drives us to love and to serve our fellow Christians, even if it means sacrificing our own wants and our own desires. We look to Christ for that example. Let's continue starting in verse 25. It's the middle section right here. It says, eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. He's referencing Psalm 24 here. We'll talk about that in a second. Verse 27, he says, If any of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. But if someone says to you, hey, this food was from a sacrifice, don't eat it, out of the consideration for the one who told you, for the sake of the conscience. And here he goes, he says it again, I don't mean your own conscience, but for the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? Paul here is asking a series of rhetorical questions on the topic of eating meat that may or may not have been sacrificed to idols, which in that time, in that place, it was a very, very common practice while butchering and processing the meat in the pagan world, to just go ahead and offer it to a sacrifice. And so they're surrounded by it. And so what Paul is saying is that, hey, seeking the good of the other person, well, that means practically for you, Christian, in Corinth, that means you can go to the meat market and buy food, even if you're not sure if the meat was sacrificed to an idol or not, because you can lean on the freedom that you have in Jesus He's saying, don't interrogate the seller of the status of the food. Don't ask a bunch of questions. Why? It may sound weird. Why not ask a question? Because likely in that context, in that culture, those questions would seem hostile and come across as rude, which would then like put a sour taste in the non-believer's mouth to the Christian. And that ultimately will hurt the witness. He's basically saying, don't be a jerk because people aren't going to like you. And they're not going to believe you. They're not going to go to the church that this person that talked to me like that, I'm going to go to that church? I tried to think of something that was very practical in our day and age, and this is the best I got. It'd be like going to Publix and interrogating the college student that is the cashier, right, for not knowing every detailing of the processing of that nice ribeye you're trying to buy. And you're sitting there going, how could you not know where this is coming from? How could you not know where this cow grazed? Don't you know that I'm a Christian and that I hold myself to this higher standard in what I eat and you don't understand, you pagan? Here's a peep. Come to Easter at the Civic Center, City Church. It just doesn't work. They'd be like, I'm not going to that church. Are you kidding me? Of how they just spoke? And Paul is saying that having your Christian witness on the forefront of your mind during interactions with non-believers is key. 
And because of that, just eat the food. And Paul offers right here scriptural support for this position that he gives. He quotes Psalm 24.1 in verse 26, which says, The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, they belong to the Lord. So Paul here is saying, hey, just eat it because everything and anything you could ever buy at the market already belongs to God. Concluding that in this situation, hey, Christian, you can partake of the meat in gratitude towards God and have a clear conscience while doing so. And then he gives another scenario in which you could do the same. And he says, you know, if the non-believer invites to his home, eat with a thankful heart. Thankful towards both your host for providing the food and also to God who ultimately created and provided the meat. And one of the main issues here in Corinth and the reason that he's telling the people of Corinth to eat the meat for the sake of gospel advancements was that some of the Corinth Christians were taking something that was of a personal conviction and making the issue objectively moral. Meaning, if anyone does or believes something that I don't agree with, you're in sin. You're being sinful. And because of that, that was causing division in the church of Corinth. Because some Christians were holding to the personal conviction of, hey, I'm not going to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul's saying, that's okay. That's fine. But then they were pointing to other Christians who did not hold to the same conviction. Those who would say, hey, I feel okay eating meat sacrificed to idols because everything in the earth belongs to God and was created by God. And Paul is saying, that's okay too. That's fine. But the people who didn't want to eat the meat were calling those who did sinful because it didn't align with their convictions. I think it's a, a truth here that we see when we abandon the truth of Scripture and substitute our personal beliefs as truth, we not only belittle the word of God, but we cause division in the body of Christ, his church. And unfortunately, that's what was happening within the body of believers here in Corinth. New Testament scholar David Garland said this about the argument that Paul presents in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, outside of its idolatrous context, the food is just simply food, and it belongs to one God. He says, no food in and of itself will corrupt so we can conclude from Paul's argument and then from Garland's statement that one of the big issues here was that less mature Christians, right, earlier along in their faith, were stumbling and they were bothered by the thought that eating food sacrificed to idols would lead to corruption and defilement of the body. But we see in Mark 7, Jesus teach on this very thing. He teaches on the, that corruption does not come from the food we eat, but from the sin inside of us. Look at Mark 7 with me. It should be on the screen. Yes. It says, summoning the crowd again, he told them, listen to me, all of you, and understand, nothing that goes into a person from the outside can defile him, but the thing that comes out of a person are what defiles him. And then he went into the house away from the crowd and then his disciples asked him about the parable. That's a common theme. The disciples were like, dude, what are you talking about? And he said to them, are you also lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but it goes into his stomach and then is eliminated. 
Thus he declared all foods clean. And then he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Jesus is saying here that the corruption that defiles comes from sin in our lives. Not the food we eat, from sin that is in our lives. So what's to be said to be concluded about this chunk of scripture, 25 through 30? Paul saying, with the part before it, Paul saying, hey, though the food is okay to eat, that you know it to be okay to eat. But to avoid wounding or disturbing the conscience of a weaker brother or sister in Christ, it is your duty as a Christian who seeks to build others up, it's your duty as a Christian to abstain from that. Look what Paul writes to the church in Rome about a very, very similar topic. So obviously this wasn't an issue specific to the church in Corinth. Look what he writes to the church in Rome, starting uh, in uh, chapter 14. He says, therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. So then, because of that, let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds others up. Not tearing down God's work because of food. Everything is clean. But what is wrong, but it is wrong to make someone fall because of what he eats. So then he gives this general statement. It is a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that would make your brother or sister stumble. Hey, if you don't eat it, that's a good thing. Why? Because it's going to not make your brother or sister stumble. Whatever you believe in these things, keep between yourself and God. Our actions as Christians should first serve Christ and then help other Christians grow and flourish. Right? This overarching goal that we can all pursue, right? everyone in this room individually, is to spur each other on, which looks like being Christians who help the fellow Christian grow into spiritual maturity, not hindering, like he said in Romans, not putting a stumbling block in the relationship with the Lord. I think it would be an awesome thing if we are all committed to helping build our spiritual family here at City Church up. We do that in our city groups, shameless plug, city groups, our friend groups, of family and our schools, neighborhood, workplaces, because the reality is, and there's scriptural evidence to this, we see this all the time in scripture, that being a Christian on this world is hard. It's sometimes very difficult. And why would we ever want to add on to the struggles, especially as a, as a spiritual family, adding on to the struggles of living in a world that is not our spiritual home? We, we can't do that. It's hard enough as it is. I had a professor in college who said that his daily goal when he woke up every morning, his daily goal, this has stuck with me, was to be a friend, a coworker, a professor that is not a burden giver, but is a burden taker, right? He says, my goal is when I walk into a room, I don't want to throw a bunch of burdens at people. I want to be that person who will go up to somebody who will encourage them, who they can talk to. He wasn't a Christian, but in our context, who we can pray with, 
who we can serve. And that's just stuck with me. Something that I've tried to instill, being a burden taker, not a burden giver. So as we finish this section of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 11, 1, it brings this entire discussion of food sacrifice to idols to a close. Chapters 8, 9, and 10. This is the very end of it. Some of you are like, thank goodness. So what's his conclusion? What's Paul's conclusion to this entire section of Scripture? 31, right here, 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Colossians 3.17 says the same thing like this. Whatever you do, whether in word or whether in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Right, Doing all things in such a way that God may be glorified. And when we look at our life and look at our actions and how we speak and what we do and what we think through this lens of, is this bringing glory to God? It will enlighten a lot of sin in our life. And that's a good thing. And a lot of the sinful desires and things that we do will be cast to the wayside because we're focusing 100% of our actions and attentions on bringing God glory. Continue in verse 32. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God just as I also try to please everyone in everything. Here we go again. Not seeking my own benefit but the benefit of many. Why? So that they may be saved. Although the Christians here and and us as well have great freedom in Christ. Everything that we do should take the great commandment into consideration, right? To love God, to love others, and then also the salvation of others must always be in view. Like, how is our witness? Are people looking at us and saying, oh, I want to be like that? Man, they live different. What, what, What has got a hold of them that makes them live this way? And so back in verse 31, it instructs us to do everything for the glory of God. How do you glorify an all-glorious God? How do you bring glory to an all-sufficient, a beautiful, wise, perfect, all-powerful God? And I think that's a big question. It's kind of an overwhelming question. And I, I heard a pastor put it like this, an analogy. It says, if someone makes a wonderful meal and then serves it up before you, How do you glorify the excellence of that meal? (laughs) He says, you don't go put on an apron and go to the kitchen and make some more dishes to try to one-up it, right? Or you don't add a few spices to it. He says, no, you glorify that perfect meal by eating a lot of it and by feeling content and saying, oh, that was awesome. And taking a picture of it and putting it on Instagram, talking to it about friends and family, In other words, it's your duty, it's my duty to glorify something infinitely beautiful and wonderful like our God that's not a burden to us. It's a pleasure. Because when we take pleasure from something, it shows its treasure in our lives. And so if God made us for his glory, it's clear that we should live for his glory. And so what does scripture tell us to do on, on how to glorify God? We go back to Scripture. Well, what do we do? Let's go to Scripture for it. What does it mean to glorify God? Well, it means that first that we love Him. Matthew 22, He said to them, Love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's one way we can glorify God as we love him. Another thing is we trust him. Right In Romans 4, talking about Abraham, the Old Testament guy, he said he did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith. So he trusted him, and it says, and that gave glory to God. So we love him, we trust him. Third, we are thankful to him. Psalm 7, I will thank the Lord for his righteousness. I will sing about the name of the Lord most high. And then finally, we obey him. Matthew 5, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works or our obedience and they give glory to your Father. In other words, the way that we bring glory to God in what we do, what we eat, what we drink, is we put him, God, above everything else in our life, including our own freedoms and our own preferences in some points. Once again, going back to Romans 14, this is what Paul said about this very topic we're talking about. He says, whoever observes the day observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. Whoever doesn't eat, it is for the Lord that he doesn't eat, and he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. If we, die, if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, he kind of he gives this like catch-all phrase. If we live or we die, we belong to the Lord, right? We belong to the Lord and we're made in his image. Therefore, we strive as Christians to bring glory to him, right? To point to him in all that we do. And the, the final verse in this whole section, Paul gives us one more charge. 11.1 1. says, imitate me, as I also imitate Christ. Paul instructs the congregation of Corinth here to look at him as this spiritual big brother, right? Someone that they can look up to, that they can aspire to be like in their walk with the Lord. And as I'm saying this, you're probably thinking about someone in your life who you do this with. Maybe it's your father, your mother, maybe it's your grandparents, maybe it's a, uh, um, a friend, a colleague, or an older person in your life. And that's the beauty of the body of Christ in a church setting is that there are countless examples of spiritual endurance and faithfulness over the course of an entire lifetime, right? And, and we hear it when we do the wedding vows, right? There are many twists and turns, ups and downs, good times and bad times, whatever the other ones are. But there are many in this room who have faithfully followed the Lord through a turbulent life. And we can look up to them. And a lot of you are in this room right now, we can look to you and say, wow, you have been a faithful follower of Christ for so many years. Thank you for your example. Spiritually, I wanna be like you. I think there's so much to be said about the faithful witness of a Christian who has persevered over a long period of time. I try to do my best to learn from those relationships I have in my life. And if you're a young Christian in this room, whether in age or spiritually young, it's okay. I would encourage you to find the same. There are so many in this room right here who we can look to and try to emulate as we live our lives. And so Paul sets this example for the Christians, I'm sorry, for the Corinthians and the Christians, just as Jesus set that example for Paul. 
And Jesus sets that example for us. With him being the ultimate standard of what is right, the ultimate standard of what is holy, and unfortunately, that standard is impossible to fully achieve. So how is it possible to live up to an impossible standard? Well, short answer is we don't, right? We can't do that. As a believer, as a Christian, we rely on the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus for our right standing before God, right? That's the gospel. And by professing Jesus as Savior and following him as our Lord, we're given the free gift of eternal life, right? Without sin, without stain, righteous. So how do we obtain that impossible standard? We don't. The work of Jesus in our place does, right? Not I, but Christ. So to finish, as we strive to live a life that is glorifying to God, right? One that is true to Scripture, we must constantly seek to build others up. And we do that by putting God first in everything that we do. We point to his glory. By putting others second, building them up, pushing them closer onward in their relationship with the Lord, and finally looking out for our self-needs last. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time uh, where we got to dive into your word, Lord. We pray that as we uh, go out into uh, our daily lives, our, um, our workplaces, our schools, um, our neighborhoods, God, that we would live a life that uh, does ju just that, that we uh, learned about today, God, that we would do everything for your glory, that everything we would do point, would point to you and your um, work of sending Jesus on the cross on our behalf. God, I pray that we would seek to build up others around us, um, that there would be people in our lives that we are spurring on in their relationship with you, Lord. Uh, please be with us the remainder of the service and this week. We love you. Amen.